welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. I welcome those of you who are joining us uh, on the internet for our live streaming worship service here at the Hayward Seventh-day Adventist Church. At the close of our worship service, we'll have a little class on the faith of Jesus up here in front, and any of you who would like to join us for that class will look at some Bible verses and be greatly encouraged by that. I'd like to invite you who may be contemplating baptism to join us for the faith of Jesus class. This morning we want to look at a real root problem that exists for every one of us, how to handle depression, how to handle despair, feelings of hopelessness and meaninglessness. And the way that the world handles these problems of guilt and despair and meaninglessness is through alcoholism and painkillers and addictions to drugs. The pain and the torture of such despair is so overwhelming that the addict feels forced to return to the substance that at least will give some kind of a superficial relief to them. Part of the despair is the product of guilt, and that which will at last kill the lost in the second death is this guilt, which Jesus has really delivered us from. That's what he went through on the cross. He never wants us to go through that guilt. He wants us to know the good news of the gospel. And so the question really comes down to which of two therapies, which of two treatments is really going to get at the root of the problem of guilt and despair? Is it drugs and psychology administered by physicians and psychologists or the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, there are many times that some kind of drug administered by a doctor is necessary, and I would never counsel against it, but I question its permanent value. In the long run, despair can be overcome only by believing in the good news. Bad news induces despair. Good news is just the exact opposite. It brings a a sense of release from the bondage to guilt, and it brings true joy the joy of Christ into the life. Part of the good news is the reality of how Jesus experienced uh, such uh, existing despair. Truly, he experienced it in the flesh. There's no drug addict or alcoholic or criminal that has ever known the painful, soul-destroying despair that Jesus experienced and felt. For him to have called heaven for a taxi to intervene, to get him off of the cross so that he could be on his way home would have been a welcome relief to his tortured soul, kind of like a drug fix comforts an addict. Every cell in Jesus' tortured being cried out for a fix. And so Paul, the writer of Hebrews, says, 
consider him. If you have despair, if you have depression, consider Jesus. I know, I know despair. I know feelings of hopelessness. I have feelings of emptiness and inadequacy that cry out for relief, which I find oftentimes in contrite prayer. I tell the Lord that I'm nothing, that I've failed in everything that I've tried to do. It seems that heaven's frown sometimes is upon me. I'm unworthy ever to preach again. Please let me die rather than fail in my mission. I've been in agony before. And what would I say? I simply would not find rest until I was alone. I could kneel and talk to the Lord and beg to him to do one of two things, to get me out of there or to give me the grace to do my duty in a way that would please and honor him. And maybe that's near to what Paul meant when he said, I die daily, and that he was often in deaths oft. When in despair, friends, stay on your knees. Beg the Lord to either heal you or to let you die right there. When we ask Jesus for bread, he's never going to give us stone. He won't say no for you. But the grace of God which has brought salvation to all has come teaching us to say no to temptations, to self-indulgence. What does the Bible say about addictions, whether to cigarettes or to alcohol or to tobacco or to drugs? Why, the Bible teaches us liberty for all men and women is what it declares. We read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Yes, and in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10, it says, Proclaim liberty throughout all of the land to the inhabitants thereof. Have you ever considered that the first of God's Ten Commandments forbids addiction to any evil or harmful substance. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord says. So addictions to habit-forming substances are idolatry and thus a violation of the first commandment. And really, they are loveless addictions, idolatries, and for that reason, they are wrong. There is no love in these substances, is there? The truth says you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And love cannot be forced by terror. All of God's commandments are love awakening faith and love in you and me. The agape of Christ constraineth us, says Paul. The commandment to love the Lord with all of our minds is in fact a divine promise that true worship rests in that love. And we are heart and soul devoted to him because of his love for us. And when that kind of love has penetrated our souls, addictions begin to fall off like dead leaves. Our idolatrous love for what is harmful to our souls Yes, even coffee is transcended by a deep, heartfelt reverence for the one who went to the cross to find and to save us and to deliver us from our bondage to addictions. In such worship, there must be the purest of liberty of all. 
We can never know the joy of obedience to the first commandment unless we understand the preamble to the Ten Commandments, and many helplessly break God's holy law because they don't know the preamble where the Lord says in Exodus 20, verse 2, that I have brought you, brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Yes, he has delivered us from our evil addictions by his sacrifice on the cross. He has reversed the condemnation that Adam has brought upon us by giving us, as Romans says, his judicial verdict of acquittal. And therein is truth that the addict of whatever kind needs to understand there is liberty in this verdict of acquittal that Jesus has given to you and me. Now, who is stronger, Christ or the angel who fell from heaven? Satan. Which is stronger, light or darkness? Which is stronger, love or hatred? Which is stronger, that much more abounding grace of the Lord Jesus or the power of evil appetites and habits and obsessions and addictions? It's grace. Which is stronger, the power of death that held Jesus captive in the tomb of Joseph or the resurrection power of the Father that raised him up after three days from the dead? Absolutely. And we can't say it often enough that much more abounding grace is stronger than all of the power of sin that the devil can invent. In fact, there is in that grace much more power. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, the text says. So let's not try to serve God with anything less than that full power of that much more abounding grace. It's revealed in Jesus Christ. The grace of Christ is the enemy of sin. It condemns it. It defeats it. It conquers it. It annihilates it so that we can be free indeed from addictions to sin. And then the grace of God is going to be manifested in us in a newness of life. That grace reigns through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we discover something precious. It is easy to be saved and hard to be lost when we begin to appreciate that much more abounding grace. And so we must not conclude that the upward path is the hard path and the downward path is the easy one because it is the opposite to that. All the way that leads to hell, there are impediments, there are obstacles to hinder us on our way. God is constantly trying to tell us this. It's like our, we are driving on a freeway and you are at the wheel, the driver's seat, because you are the boss, but the Holy Spirit is sitting beside you in the front seat. And he is saying, Don't stay on this highway to hell. Take this exit and go to the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would do when he gave him the name Parakletos. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Parakletos, the one called to sit down beside you and to never leave you, to walk parallel with you in life 
Now, don't misunderstand. You do have something to do. It's to make the constant choice to let the Holy Spirit guide you. But please remember that you are not your Savior yourself. You let the Lord save you. And it is you who turns the wheel onto that blessed exit off of that freeway coming up that leads you to eternal life. But he guided you to do it. And you praise the Lord forever and ever. Someday you and I are going to be in God's eternal kingdom of glory thanks to our Savior. And we're going to look back on our earthly pilgrimage wondering why in the world did it take us so long to overcome our worldliness, our selfishness, our sinful addictions, yes, our Laodicean lukewarmness. Why did it take us so long? And we're going to see that pure river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God, and yes, of the Lamb, the Lamb, yes, the crucified Christ we will see there. And we will at last understand why Paul said long ago that he would glory in nothing else save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why he determined not to know anything amongst you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're then going to begin to understand clear as crystal how how Christ as the Lamb of God tasted our second death. He endured the horror of hell in our behalf. He endured being made the curse of God, made to be sin for us, who knew no sin, experienced in himself all of the agony of the totality of all of our human terror that's multiplied by unspeakable agony and also divine terror and endured to the fullest the reality of every man's worst nightmares. And then at last we will sing with new understanding the anthem, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. But what a pity. What a pity if we can't begin to understand all of that today. Or can we? If we could, we would find the victory over our worldliness, our sinful addictions, yes, our deep-seated selfishness. Not sometime far off in eternity, but now, today. It's true. A little child can't appreciate what happened on the cross. He or she can only laugh and coo and enjoy their superficial level of life. And thank God he or she can do that. But who of us is content? How many of us are content to remain as a little child forever? No. Isn't it time for us to begin to grow into Christ? Isn't it time to come into the knowledge of the Son of God, under the full-grown person, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Isn't it time to leave little childish things behind and become full-grown in Him? Well, ask the Father. Ask the Father to lead you to his son's cross so you can begin to see what happened there 
and you will never be the same person again. Now, this is a very widespread malady we're talking about this morning. These addictions are really produced by our human despair and depression. Every one of us are depressed people. We're depressed because we're sinners, and our sinner, as sinners it produces guilt, and guilt de- produces depression. So what's the cure to it? Is it to do as the worldly person does, is to drown it in alcohol and cigarettes and drugs? Is that the, the resolution to it? No, Jesus has a much re- better resolution to our despair and our depression. Even many who sincerely want to know the Lord Jesus Christ suffer from depression. And physicians are trained to treat it. Books are written about it. Institutions exist where sufferers can be treated and economic, huge economic losses come because of it. The wealthy endure equally with the poor, and perhaps more so. And even little children are given medications to correct depression. How does the Holy Spirit relate to depression? Medical scientists who do not recognize The Holy Spirit's existence can rely on drugs and psychology in efforts to treat it. And even in the church, there is a widespread depression that pastors are at a loss to relieve. And so they have comedy hour in church to relieve people of their depression. They tell funny jokes, funny stories, and amusements. It's a social whirl and lots of noises and band but all of it is a helpless band-aid to depression. You know, I was very impressed reading this last week from Sister White that the minister of the Word of God should not be a jokester in the pulpit. We're living in solemn times which demand a solution to our problems, and a solemn solution to it is not joking and not entertaining people. You know, depression is just the condition that Jesus describes. You want to see it in Matthew 11, verse 28? Matthew 11, verse 28. In verse 30, this is Jesus describing the condition. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Isn't that depression? And I will give you rest. But often the way seems blocked, and we wrestle with nagging doubts about whether coming to Jesus can really help. Aren't committed Christians also heavy laden? Doubts plunge us back into the pit. Depression afflicts multitudes, and right here is an acid test of the faith of Jesus. The shadows are dark and heavy. Can we let in a ray of sunlight with the faith of Jesus? You know, the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. And when he's resisted, what happens? Depression comes in. When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and it's resisted, depression comes. Unless we cut our spiritual nerve and create a soul lobotomy... The final sin is against the Holy Spirit of resisting him. Some then find endless carefree abandon because they've finally gotten rid of the Holy Spirit. But we don't want to do that. 
the only truly sinless man in history, suffered the most enormous depression of any human being. He cried out in his ultimate soul agony, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet that depression was, we have to say that that depression of Jesus was not a personal sin on his part. There have been faithful followers of Jesus who have suffered depression. Joseph, sold as a slave into Egypt, must have suffered it. David, run around and persecuted by King Saul, his psalms reflect his depression, but his psalms were healing medications. The prophet Jeremiah lamented and must have experienced depression, and there are many others in the Bible. It could be a hidden blessing. The faith of Jesus gets slighted as a relief from depression because many pastors cannot distinguish between Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant is not mere psychology. It's honest truth. No matter where we turn in the Bible, we meet someone who suffers what we moderns call depression. And the psalm that Jody read for us, Psalm 130, reflects the depression of the, of the King David. There in Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. You know, that's the powerful name, O Lord. That just saying it humbles one's heart. O Lord. And then in verse 2, David begs, Lord... Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. And he does, then he does not get immediate relief, for he adds, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, he writes. David's problem that makes his depression painful is guilt. For he tells us in verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? That's the substratum of depression. And the Holy Spirit has been speaking to him, whose first work on David's heart is the conviction of sin, and it's painful. And if we trace that conviction to its source, we come to Calvary, where Jesus prays the Father to forgive those who have crucified him. And then we realize that it's us he's praying for. Not the Jews or the Romans, but you. And we have two wonders then unfolding here. The wonder of God's redeeming love and David's deep unworthiness that he now realizes. Therefore, he says... There is forgiveness with you. He says that you may be feared, that you may be loved. The prince of sufferers from depression is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true. Jesus was the prince of sufferers in depression. His, you just follow him to Gethsemane, okay? And then his disciples, even Peter and James and John, they couldn't even give him an hour of precious human time 
without going to sleep on him. And then he began to be sorrowful, it says in Matthew, and deeply depressed, very heavy. How heavy? My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, he said, even to death. Have you ever been near there? And we know that Jesus never sinned. Amen. Therefore, we have to conclude that to be depressed is not of itself sin. It's human. Jesus, the Son of God, became human, the Son of Man. He took into his soul all of the depression that all humans have ever suffered. Cumulative, corporate, he bore it even unto death. The final God-forsaken kind of hopeless death, when he cried out in those depths, why have you forsaken me? Question, why do so many people who go to church suffer from depression, just like so many people who do not go to church? Answer, for the same reason that Abraham's children, his descendants who were freeborn, they just let themselves become slaves in Egypt. They became entangled in Old Covenant thinking, and the Apostle Paul at last had the keen insight to see that their Old Covenant thinking even is what gives birth to bondage, he says in Galatians 4.24. Their Old Covenant thinking gave birth to bondage. It was God's intention to bring them out of that bondage, to renew them at Sinai with the glorious liberty of the new covenant experience. It's what he had promised to their father Abraham. But their slave mentality at Sinai, they brought that with them from Egypt, and instinctively it drove them to choose again the old covenant experience. And their bodies were free but their minds were still in bondage. But God had promised Abraham, look now up toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, it says, and he counted it to him for righteousness. That was Abraham. But newly delivered Israel, his children at Sinai, they did not so believe in the Lord. They responded with a firm self-righteousness. Then all of the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they didn't believe God's promise as Abraham did. At first, they made their own promise. Even he, even Abraham, fell back into his slippery old covenant pattern of thinking with his affair with Hagar, which produced Ishmael, and hence we have modern Palestine today. Thus God's true people at Mount Sinai fastened themselves into their own homegrown old covenant. God did not lead them into that. Their national history thereafter and all the way to the cross outside Jerusalem's wall where they murdered their lowly Messiah, their holy Messiah, was just a history of ups and downs and revivals and backsliding, 
syndrome and every revival such as that, even of King Josiah, ended as did his till there was no remedy and the city of peace with its glorious holy temple had to be burned and the pagan Babylonians took the people off into captivity for 70 years. And Paul's conclusion is, learn from this history, will you, modern Israel? Learn from this history. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And seven times he spoke to Abraham in Romans 4. He spoke of him as our father. Abraham is our father. Abraham. Think about him. He had to wait for nearly a hundred years for the birth of his first son, Isaac, right? The one who was the promised son. Can you imagine the years of depression he, had, he and Sarah endured a hundred years waiting for the promised son? Waiting against hope, who still, the Bible says, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. And Abraham learned in Romans 4, 16, that God gives life to the dead. And he calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. He did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Now, our father Abraham became an expert in battling with depression. The new covenant promises are what brought him through into the sunlight. The new covenant promises given to him, and thus to all of his descendants, you and me, are in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. So to say glibly that they are the cure for our widespread malady of depression would be too superficial. They are not to be compared with this or that drug developed by the pharmaceutical companies. Those promises given to Abraham are simply the faith of Jesus for you and me. And they are included in the everlasting gospel of the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14. And it's our privilege to live in their sunlight right now, every day of our lives. Sometimes we human beings, we go through harrowing, traumatic experiences that leave us with the problems of depression and nightmares, and our minds are overburdened trying to understand the guilt that we may think we are involved in and the underlying fear that oppresses us. It's easy for people who haven't been through this hell to say flippantly, oh, Jesus will help you, but then the problem continues. And then in desperation, we start taking prescription drugs, and lo and behold, they do help for a while, but in our better judgment, we we long to be relieved, to have relief without those drugs. For now, we're going to fear their side effects. Superficial, thoughtless help only makes the problem worse. But Isaiah quotes the Father saying of Christ, 
by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. And Paul considers that this knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, is an excellency more precious than winning any jackpot. Paul says he wants to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Could this knowledge be better than drugs? Jesus went through the ultimate, the ultimate human experience of trauma there in Gethsemane and then in his cross. He experienced it as a human being, but it was unspeakably worse because he was also divine. And so he suffered the pain on an infinite scale. That made him become the exactly right psychiatrist that every individual depressed person, male or female, needs. And that's what it means that he's our high priest in the most holy. Read Psalm 22. Read Psalm 69. It will introduce you to Jesus' hellish nightmare of depression that he went through. It was actual hell that he endured for you and for me. He's your real brother. He is your real brother. And as you listen and as you share with him what this hell was, you become a partaker of Christ's sufferings, which means that you see how he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace, our nightmares was upon him. And then the blessing comes. And by his stripes, we are healed. Walk softly now, will you? Because this is more than human psychology. This is more than human psychiatry. This is Bible truth. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.